Greetings, this is Pastor A.J. Swanson from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. We're so excited that you've joined us as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew and the Kingdom of Heaven. We hope this sermon series encourages you. Today we're going to look at the model of prayer that is given to us within the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to picture it this way. We get to this moment in the sermon uh, that is very glorious, yet at the same time intimate. You have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, offering up to mankind a way in which he can speak and she can speak to their Father in heaven. It's essentially Jesus taking one hand and, and placing it in the hand of their Father and saying, this is your Father. This is my father, and I want you to have a relationship with one another. If you're a guy and you're like, I don't like the image of a hand being placed in someone else's hand, it's, it's Jesus locking arms, introducing us to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and saying, this is someone who's going to go to battle with you throughout the course of your life. And this is how you are to interact with him. And so there's a lot to unpack in the text today. So we're going to be right in Matthew 6. 5 through 18. If you have your Bibles, turn there. There's a lot that we can mark and we can rejoice in. Um, if not, well, it can follow along on the screen as well. We're going to start at verse 5, go through 18. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass, oh, let's keep going. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that they are fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his presence this morning. Father God, we ask that your words would be proclaimed this morning, that I would be nothing more than a messenger and a mouthpiece for the words of the Lord within the text of Scripture. For I know, Lord, that without the Spirit's presence at this pulpit, Lord, my words are nothing more than a loud gong. 
And so, Lord, I ask that your spirit would be present at this pulpit. Lord, I also pray for our congregation, that our hearts would be drawn to this message. Our hearts would be moved, would be pierced, would be transformed because of the words of Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So anywhere I go, um, people know that I'm a pastor, especially two years into this community, right? They just know suddenly everything changes when I walk into a room, right? And when it gets to a meal or when it gets to uh, a time at the meeting, even if it's like, I mean, if it's at the school, if it's at the gathering place, if it's at the Huber, and there becomes a moment there that a prayer needs to be put forth, everyone kind of looks at me from across the room. I get that stink eye that says, oh, that's your job, okay? I would like you to pray uh, because that's what you're paid to do, right? So I, I know prayer, right? Um, when I was in youth ministry, uh, this was one of the hardest uh, things to get young students to do. When I got them in sixth grade, uh, many of them, when I asked them to pray out loud, it was like, oh, I can't, I can't speak out loud. I can't let alone pray out loud, right? It was terrifying. Now, by the time they got to high school, most of them had gotten over that, right? But there is a fear that takes place for prayer in many young women and young men. It's scary to pray. And let's be honest, for many adults, it's scary to pray too. Why? Well, I think there is one key, and that is that many people equate prayer eloquence with spiritual maturity. Many people equate prayer eloquence with spiritual maturity. Well, our, our text today is about to take this concept. Um, it's gonna write it on a nice sheet of paper. Um, it's gonna cover it in kerosene. It's gonna light it on fire. It's going to put, take the ashes of that, it's going to put it in the Elon Musk rocket, and it's going to send it into the sun, okay? It's great. I hope that today you begin to overcome some natural fear of praying. It goes further, okay? While it gets rid of the fear of man, reasons why we shouldn't pray, it also offers us a model. So it gives us, this is kind of a how-to section on how to pray. And when I meet with junior high kids and they're learning how to pray, this is actually where I take them to teach them how to do it. Our, our Jesus gave us a model of how to do it. For the more they understand the Lord's prayer as a model for prayer, the more rich their prayer life becomes. So, and I would challenge that to you today as well. If you're someone who struggles to pray, pray in public, use this as a model. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But before we get to the prayer itself, Christ, again, as only Christ can do, deals with the heart issues that surround the idea of prayer. So let's look at the text and see what it tells us, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And it gives you another what not to do. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So when you pray, let's talk about when you pray. I want you to notice, some, uh, notice the same expectation here, right, that we talked about in previous weeks the same expectation found um, in the giving. The assumption is 
that this is not what if you pray, it is when you pray. If you're a Christian, the assumption is that you will speak to your Father in heaven, which makes sense, right? If you have union with our Heavenly Father, which is what we believe if you are in Christ, if you're a new creation, because of the work of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is placing a seal on your life, right? Then you are an heir. You're a priest of the Most High God. When we were going through Hebrews, it called us that over and over again, a priest. Why? Because as a priest, you have direct access to our Father in heaven. Do you believe this? Do you understand that you have direct access to God, the God of the universe? Do you believe that he actually cares for you and desires to have a relationship with you? So much so that he sends his son and his son gives you the play-by-play on how to pray. He sends the messenger so that you can have a message with God. This should be mind-blowing. Not only in the sense that we have a God that actually wants to have a conversation with us, but he wants you to come before him and speak to him. Look, think about it this way. I don't care who the guy or girl is that's president of the United States, but if I get a call from the president, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to listen. And, and, and imagine if they actually liked me, right? And they wanted to speak with me and they had a great work for me to do. I would listen even more intently. If I would do that with the president, how much more should we view the God of the universe that wants to speak with us? I'm going to say that phrase again. The God of the universe wants to speak with you. That's amazing. But we give excuses not to pray, right? We have excuses not to pray all the time. Here's the first excuse. I don't know how. I think that's actually a pretty good excuse, okay? And Jesus answers that excuse. He gives us a model in which to pray right here. Second excuse. I don't have time, right? Part of the assumption is that our prayers have to be really long and they have to be in the King James, right? Suddenly we're saying Old English as we enter the dinner table. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for thy turkey that you've placed upon our table and will fill our breasts. And, I mean, just stop it, okay? Our prayers have meaning not because of the eloquence of our words, but because of the heart behind it. It's truly beautiful. And I think the other reason that we claim that we don't have time is because we're also convinced that prayer is not a good use of it. We're Americans, right? We do stuff. We conquer places. And prayer isn't really that. In our fast-paced, hyper-individual, Protestant work ethic, look at me, post on social media, stir up emotions world, prayer offers us a chance and a reminder that we're not in control, that we, that we as Christians don't govern our own autonomy, 
that our emotions are fleeting, and that we can rest in the work of Christ. Those are the things that prayer offers us to do. The third, I think it's an underlining assumption, I don't think anyone would ever say this out loud when it comes to an excuse not to pray, is this, that it's not worth our time. It's just not worth our time. Prayer doesn't change anything. Prayer doesn't benefit me in the moment. How wrong are we to believe this? Think about it. How many blessings have we left on the table simply because we did not ask our Father for them when they were right there to be grasped? Speak to your Father. He desires to bless you. So my first challenge to you today is to make your what if I pray a when I pray. And when we do this, Jesus actually gives us directions on how to do it and how not to do it. So let's cover the how not to pray first because that's what Jesus did, right? How not to pray. Um, it first is to like the hypocrites. It's verse 5. Do not pray like the hypocrites. Prayer is a heart thing far beyond it being a heard thing. In the first century, different priests were called each week to go to synagogue, and they would pray a specific text of scripture, or it'd be their term as their priest that week to pray. And like all mankind, they would be tempted to make sure that their prayers sounded better than the priest that came before them the week prior. And they wanted their prayers to sound more eloquent than their buddy priest that would be praying the following week. And there were moments in the streets, right, where a specific time was set aside for prayer that a priest just happened to be in the marketplace at exactly that time and would turn towards the temple in Jerusalem and offer up a very eloquent prayer in front of everyone to see. I can't believe I ended up here just in front of everyone at the right time to pray right? As the hypocrites do. Their focus was not a heart directed towards God, but a heart directed inward for others to marvel at their words and their eloquence. And they received their rewards is what the text said. Know what their reward was? Good job, Jonah. Beautiful words, Samuel. And that was their reward. The other way of not to praying, number two, is with empty phrases. What does that mean? That's verse seven. Even the Gentiles of the time knew the power of the Hebrew God. So even the Gentiles, think about this, would include Hebrew words within their prayers because they believed the Hebrew God empowered them. That was the empty words. They didn't know what those Hebrew words meant, but they heard a Hebrew guy say it one time, so I'm going to include that in my prayer. They did not know the God. They just hoped their words perked the ears of a God, and in doing so, their words were empty. Further, many of them did not know the meaning of what they were saying because it was a foreign tongue. Here's my fear. We're going to address it later. And that is that when many of us actually say the Lord's Prayer, it's empty words. We actually don't know what it means. We just say it from rote because that's what we've been saying since we were kids. 
So we're going to look at that and actually see what the Lord's Prayer means a little bit later today. So how do we pray? How to pray? First, it's between you and God. Jesus urges his disciples to find space to pray. Find space to pray. Don't make it a show. Like many of the other activities found in the Sermon on the Mount, this is another one that, that we can water, that we can foster. Christian, our public prayer life should never be more important and invested in than our private one. If I were to get up on this stage and lead prayers on a Sunday morning, and it would be the first time that I would have bowed my head all week, I would be relying far more on my own words, eloquence, and cleverness than I would the words of the Lord. My public prayers should be an overflow of my private prayers throughout the week. And when we do this, the heart of our prayers are more likely to be upward directed than inward directed, directed towards God and not our own reputation. The second way of how to pray. It's very simple. It's actually the opposite of how not to pray. Instead of there being empty phrases, we want full phrases, full phrases. We'll see this type of full phrase when we get to the Lord's Prayer, but it's making sure that our words actually contain meaning, that our hearts are set before the King. It's the opposite of the empty words of the Gentiles. It can be the simplest prayers. Know this. It can be the simplest prayers. Simply crying out to God, help me, can have more power and impact than praying from rote and not really knowing what we're saying. Before we move on to the meat of the prayer, I want to jump ahead to the fasting section. I know some of you are like, why are you doing this, AJ? Uh, because the text greatly echoes what we just covered when it came to the how to and how not to section on prayer. Um, if you have your Bibles in front of you, this would actually be a fun moment to underline or circle all the echoes that you see between uh, 5.8 and then 16 through 18. Um, if you want to be the smart aleck that just circles the whole section and says echo from above, you're not wrong here. <laughs> you're not wrong. It is essentially, in many cases, almost a word-for-word -word echo. So hear what the word of the Lord says on fasting. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, same outline, right? Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Again, reference to the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, reference to rewards when we just focus on the our desires and praise of men. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a complete echo of the text before. So let's talk about it again. When you fast, notice that this is assumed. I know, look, we live in a very full age in the sense of our bellies, right? We live in America. If we fast, it's typically on purpose, right? We intentionally fast. The author is also speaking here of the day um, that back then, they might not have found food for lunch. And so they say, okay, I'll just, 
I'll call it fasting, right? They'll spiritualize a regular incident in their lives. Um, and that's been the case for the majority of history. We forget that prior to the 20th century, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty 120 years ago. Less than 10% do today, okay? The 20th century has been very good for everyone's bellies, especially when it comes to moving food, growing food, and getting food out. Uh, most of us only fast when we go to McDonald's, and that's because it's fast food. Uh, that doesn't count, just in case. I don't want you to get the confused there. That isn't what Jesus is talking about. So what is fasting? Fasting is intentionally not eating with the purpose of using your hunger to direct your prayers. Hence the link and the reason I wanted to cover it together. I would encourage you to build into your life a habit of fasting. Not just to lose weight, like that's really popular on the internet right now, right? I'm on the fasting diet, okay? But fast for the intention of it helping direct our prayers not to be the model that we all desire to be physically. Use it for the purpose of prayer. And this is really profound, and I think it will have a great impact on your life. We started, this was about four years prior to COVID when I was in Texas. We decided to do a 24 to 48 hour fast with our teenagers. That, they're going to love that, right? Hey, I'd like you not to eat for two days. And many of them took up the challenge, right, with the intention of praying. There was a lot of prayer in that event. There was a lot of scripture reading in that event. There was a lot of praying for one another in that event. There was a lot of worship in the midst of that event. And our cheapest event, because we didn't have to buy food for teenagers, right, actually became the most popular event that they looked forward to every year. Why? Because they understood for those 24, 48 hours the importance and the beauty of linking fasting with prayer. I hope that that becomes the same way with you, that it becomes a habit of something that you do for your good and for God's glory. So how do we not fast, okay? See prayer like the hypocrites. I won't belabor the point, right? Fasting is not about you. Don't use social media when you're fasting. Please don't make it a hashtag. Fasting. I have seen people do this. I've seen people do this in a Christian community. And I'm literally like, it's in the Bible. It, it covers this exact thing. Stop it. Don't make it about you. Well, how to fast? How do we fast? It's between you and God. I won't belabor the point because I just belabored it with, with a prayer. My guess is you get it. Now, however, you might be asking, right? Pastor, I know how to not eat, right? All of you can fast. But how do I pray? Well, Jesus gives us a model. It's the model for prayer. Now, now why do I call the Lord's Prayer a model? I think this is clearly what Jesus was doing. He was providing a model. Even though as early as the second century, Christians started doing this from rote memory. And I don't think this is evil by any means. I love saying the Lord's Prayer uh, with many of you corporately. 
And in the Lord's Prayer, believe it or not, there are no singular pronouns. They're all plural. There, so there's a real sense that it should be done corporately and with other believers. We edify one another when we pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. It's a good thing. But how do we keep the Lord's Prayer from just becoming empty words? How can we declare this prayer and it have a deeper and richer meaning and purpose? The answer is clear. You have to know what it's saying. So let's do that. Let's look at it one more time. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some of you might add the line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the epilogue that many of us recite, and I actually think it's a beautiful summation of the Lord's Prayer. However, I need to note, as someone who exposits the word, that this is not in the original text, that epilogue. It's included in some translations of the King James Version, and that's because the King James Version was translated from Latin manuscripts, uh, which included the phrase, but was probably added later by a later scribe. The oldest manuscripts, the largest group of manuscripts, and most importantly, the majority of Greek manuscripts, the original manuscripts of the New Testament, do not include this line. However, here's your freedom. Feel free to say it to the, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. I think it's actually a rich and beautiful epilogue to it that encompasses everything that is said. But I don't want you to confuse it for something that is within the text. The real epilogue is verse 14, which has a direct tie to verses 12 and 13 before it. We'll actually cover that next week. But let's start at the beginning, which can be best described, I feel like, as intimate yet glorious. Intimate yet glorious. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It was rare for first century Jews to refer to Yahweh God as Father. But Christ models how to do this for us within the text. You are to see Yahweh God as Father. That's why you and I are constantly referred to as children of God throughout the New Testament. And this Father is a great source of security. Look at some more text. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We all know, I think, what a good father is in our minds, right? Maybe you, maybe you didn't have a good father in this life, but I think we all have an idea of a good father, especially in the age of television. I think there's always a TV dad that all of us cling to at some point, right? But he's one that's a protector, one that's an encourager, one that loves us so much that he willingly disciplines us when we go astray, one who, when we fail, he doesn't to pick us up late into an evenings when we find ourselves at the wrong place, a father who always leaves the light on, a father who would do anything for us. The intimacy given by a good father cannot be understated. 
And this father, Yahweh God, desires intimacy with his people. And Jesus is used to model what that intimacy would and will look like. Think about how he refers to our relationship with our Father in heaven um, in John 20. This is the story of Lazarus being resurrected. He's telling Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a rich intimacy within the text there. It is by the work of Jesus that we have the love of God the Father given to us. This next verse, uh, I, I would have you memorize, child of God. Cling to it when you doubt that your Father in heaven has great affection for you. Cling to it when the world would tell you differently. We need not fear the world or the powers of the world. We need only rest in the Father who is in heaven. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. We have a God who desires rich, deep, and joyous intimacy with his creation, with you. And yet, and yet, we so profoundly miss how glorious he is, how holy he is. While this is a God who offers us intimacy, he is a God of grandeur that we cannot fully understand. Isaiah, when he sees God and the angels singing, holy, 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 drops to his face for he sees only a glimpse of the glory of God. And when John sees Jesus in Revelation, this is John, this is Jesus' best friend. If anyone can go up to Jesus and give him knucks and a hug, it's this guy, okay? And the moment he sees the glory of God imprinted on his best friend, he too, like Isaiah, drops to the floor. For God is holy, holy, holy. He is intimate, yet glorious. So we might pray our Father in heaven and feel tremendous privilege as we approach this marvelous God in such an intimate and personal way. But my fear is that today we've lost sight of what it means to be transcendent, what it means for God to have majesty and power, God's glory. And in doing this, we actually miss what great gift it is that we're offered to call this glorious God Father. Don't miss the intimacy and the transcendence. It is a privilege. There's a great hymn writer, Walter Chalmers Smith, and he captures the glory of God in this song. Maybe you've heard of this hymn. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. The word in the text, hallowed, is the word of sanctification, to be set apart. Do you treat the very name of God as something that is set apart? apart 
or is it used in your vernacular, in your day-to-day -day activities that might even slip out in the profane? The Jews in the first century were so terrified of using the name of God wrong that they wouldn't even write it. Do you treat him as holy? Do you treat him for whom he is? Or do you simply treat him like another God among the many in our life? Christian, when we pray this prayer, may it not be the empty words like the Gentiles, do you truly pray for his name to be sacred, to be hallowed, to be set apart? It's the great dichotomy within the text, within the first part of the prayer. You have a God who is both intimate and glorious. And here's the ironic part. The more we understand the intimacy, the more we understand the glory. And the more we understand the glory of God, the more beautiful we see the gift of his intimacy. That's why we should pray this on a regular basis. And we strive to do such. Here's the next part. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is again a reference to the kingdom of heaven. It's the theme of the gospel of Matthew. And it seems to be one of the major overarching themes of all of God's narrative. This portion of prayer reminds us that our lives are for the glory of God. When we pray a prayer saying, your kingdom, we demolish our own. When we pray a, pray, when we pray a prayer saying, your will, we give up our own. When we plead for the earth to be like heaven, we are reminded that God's will is flowing from one to another. We talked about it in an earlier sermon. There's a real sense that God is on the throne now. We live in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. Christ has been inaugurated as king, but he has not yet returned to reign on earth yet. That's coming in Revelation 22. Yet it is still very clear from the Great Commission that all authority, all, 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 all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. We live in his kingdom. We live in his kingdom as what? As salt and light in the world as we act as his disciples. Well, what's a disciple? It's a great first century word, right? A disciple's this. Disciple's a follower, a worshiper, and a witness for the king. You and I live as ambassadors of the kingdom. And when we display the Beatitudes, when we display the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and to the lives around us, those fruits can't help but have impact on the world around us because we are again salt and light in his kingdom. As the Holy Spirit works in us to make us little Christs, which is just another word for Christians, we offer to a dying world fruit in the desert, good fruit. We bear witness to the work of what the king of this world has done and everywhere he goes, everywhere we go, he goes. For the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and slowly expands. The kingdom of God is like leaven worked into flour. And as his disciples, we make much of his kingdom. So much so that the very gates of hell tremble against it. Notice which one's on the offensive. Hell has the gates. We have the battering ram. Amen?
Yet when we pray this prayer, we are casting aside the things of this world that we desire. We're taking up our cross. We're entering into suffering. We're giving to the needy that we saw last week. We're giving up our Sundays to make it his day. We are conforming more and more into our Im his image. And it costs us our kingdom. We should tremble as we pray this prayer. For if we mean it, it cannot not have an impact on our lives. Because we're calling for his kingdom to be made glorious. As we offer a dying world intimacy. So this calls us to two responsibilities as part of the prayer. Here's the first responsibility. When we pray for God's will to be done, we're actually committing ourselves to learn all we can about his will. Thy will be done. What's his will? We learn this from the scriptures. If we're his disciples, or if we're his followers, if we are his followers, we're to bury this within our hearts. Christian, that's a good thing. It feeds us on our highest of highs and our lowest of lows. Are you in the world? Do you believe it to be his? Are you in the word? Do you believe it to be his as well? Do you cherish it? Is the Bible sufficient for you to live life? Is it living and active? Here's my warning. My, my fear is that for some of you, the word of God is very sour to you. And if it is sour, that reflects how you are salt and light, if you are at all. May you find sweetness in the word of God. May you be in it. Second, if my heart cries out for God's will to be done, then in praying this prayer, it is my pledge that, so help me God, by his grace, I will do his will as much as I know how. You can't say, your kingdom come, while at the same time cheating your employees out of a fair wage. You can't say, your will be done, and then turn on pornography on your computers. You can't say, on earth, as it is in heaven, and then do the most hellish things to your neighbors. In praying these words, we begin to mold our hearts more into the image of Jesus. For this is how he prayed. This is how he modeled to pray. Hear this. This is supposed, this prayer is supposed to be a blessing for you. We're going to get to the second half of the Lord's Prayer next week. But the first half is all about the glory and goodness and wonder of God. It's supposed to remind us that he is the one who's in control. He is the one that we can trust. And he's good. And that his kingdom's glorious. And that there's intimacy with transcendence. And that there's life abundance in the midst of trials and sufferings. It's why the persecuted Christians all across the globe and for the last 2,000 years could pray this prayer with confidence and satisfaction. 
knowing that their lives might soon end because of this faith. For they know that their lives are in their Father's hands. And whether they live or die now, eternity is stamped onto their hearts. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for them. There is a kingdom that is greater than the evils of this world and which is ruled by the Prince of Peace. For us wealthy, in a historical and worldly sense, Americans, right? It means seeing God's kingdom as bigger than our own. Not only more important than our own, but as better than our own. God's kingdom is better than our own. And when we make much of his kingdom, when we make much of his kingdom and less of ours, we actually find more joy, peace, more fruit of the Spirit. If you're here today, this is one of those sermons, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this might make very little sense to you. How on earth can you say that by giving up many things in life, I'm going to receive even greater rewards? Because the Bible tells me. And I have now 2,000 years of church history that testifies to it too. Church history is cool for those of you that miss those books. I love church history. It's wonderful. If Jesus is not king, right? If he's just a dead historical figure, then you're right. This prayer makes absolutely no sense. But if Christ is indeed who he says he is, then he offers to make your life whole. Offers to give you satisfaction, offers to give you the satisfaction we all long for. Not in a kingdom of your own making, but in a kingdom of his. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. If you're here today, and you're a Christian, we're going to end our sermon by praying the first two lines of the Lord's Prayer together. We'll be up here. And I hope that we can pray them in community with joy, with peace, and with fullness to be reminded of what the text really means and how we can begin to see it take root in our lives and our lives be changed because of it. So let's pray the last two lines together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bow your heads with me. Father God, may our words not be empty. May our hearts not be empty. But even in the moments that they are, we pray that you would fill them. You would give us the words and the cries and laments to say when we do not have words for what we're going through. You would give us peace in the midst of pain. You would give us joy in the midst of trials. You'd give us a little larger taste of your kingdom in the midst of this world. And so, Lord, as we submit ourselves to your will and your kingdom, may you be made known 
May we, as your disciples, be followers, worshipers, and witnesses to the world around us, looking for the God who has created them. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we respond in worship.